Okay. So on previous talks here and in a lot of the retreats that I give, I often refer to the overall view of the practice in terms of a metaphor of the two wings to awakening. So most of you are probably familiar with that, the balance between wisdom and compassion being these two wings. Um, from that metaphor, I think we can get a very immediate sense of we need both of these to be equally well-developed if we're metaphorically going to fly. And because we're in the insight tradition, as the name Auckland Insight suggests, most of us have a lot more familiarity with the practice of the wisdom wing, which is insight, mindfulness as the basis for insight, and generally speaking, people have less practice with, less experience of the compassion wing. And in this context, the compassion that's referred to is really a kind of an umbrella term for all skillful states of heart and mind. So it includes not only compassion itself, but kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity, which you might recognize are the four practices together known as the Brahma-Viharas. And this term Brahma-Vihara is quite difficult to translate into English because the word Brahma refers to a kind of god that was worshipped by the Brahmins, a religious tradition that was the dominant one, in my understanding, at the time of the Buddha. And we don't really have an equivalent of Brahma in our contemporary culture. So it's sometimes translated as heaven instead. And the term Vihara means dwelling place. So a literal translation might be heavenly dwelling place. Sometimes we see it translated as divine abodes or sublime abidings, heavenly realms or boundless states. But what I'd like to highlight that all of these have in common is this aspect of vihara as being home, as somewhere where we can dwell, where we can abide. So metaphorically and perhaps literally as we practice them more, these four states together can create our true home, somewhere where we can really naturally abide or dwell feel at ease, feel relaxed and comfortable and be who we truly are. So this is one sense of Brahma-Viharas that I like to emphasize as being our true home. And there's this, this sense of ease and of balance is emphasized really through all the Buddha's teachings, which as many of you know, are he developed them as what's known as the middle way. And it's said that in the story of his life, after he attained Nibbana, or full liberation, Nibbana being the complete freedom of heart and mind, he gave a teaching where he explained the middle way as not falling into either of two extremes. So on one side, the habit of self-indulgence, and on the other, the habit of self-mortification. And I'll come back to that in a moment. First, this habit of self-indulgence, pretty straightforward. 
perhaps familiar to some extent to all of us, including myself, the tendency to take refuge in sense pleasures. And, you know, most of us put quite a bit of effort into chasing after pleasant experiences and manipulating the world out there to try and make ourselves happy, which, as I think we all know, is at best only partly successful. And the other downside of trying to change conditions out there in order to be happy is that it really makes us dependent on external conditions for our happiness. Things out there have to be a certain way in order for us to be at ease or happy. And I think it's really a key point to try and understand this on deeper and deeper levels because it's not the message that we get from mainstream society. So mainstream society, happiness comes from having things, <coughs> from being someone, from having status and fame and being good-looking and rich and having all the goodies and on and on and on, all that material kind of stuff. Or as one psychologist describes it, marketing executives want us to believe that happiness lies in a product that will taste delicious magically fill our bank accounts or transform us into a supermodel that looks not a day past 20. Our social norms promise that happiness will lie in status, accomplishments, relationships and possessions. We're always on the lookout for the next thing. Once we have the perfect mate, we look for the perfect home. Once we've found the perfect home, we look for a bigger one or a new car or a bigger bank account. Once the perfect job is attained, we look for the next promotion or look forward to retirement or a new job. And we seem to be on a constant and futile chase after the promised land of lasting happiness. And I quote uh, a psychologist there because over the last few years, in part thanks to the development of Buddhism coming more into the mainstream, there's been a lot of psychology research done on things like the benefits of practicing compassion. Traditionally, until relatively recently, Western psychology and psychiatry focused on pathology, what was wrong with people's minds, and they didn't put a lot of emphasis on what was actually a healthy mind, what were good states to be in. And it's partly thanks to Buddhism that there's become more interest in what does actually a high-functioning mind, heart-mind look like. And there's been particular emphasis on recent years on this aspect of compassion. And quite a few studies have shown, by Western standards, pretty surprising results. So study after study has shown that compassion boosts physical health and well-being in ways that even dramatic life events like winning the lottery don't. And one of the psychologists makes the point one reason that compassion makes us happy is that by broadening our perspective beyond ourselves, we know that from research on anxiety and depression that those tense and anxious, unhappy states are highly self-focused. During stress or sadness, we're usually focused on the things that are going wrong in our lives. But research shows that depression and anxiety are linked to a state of self-focus, a preoccupation with me, myself, and I. And when you do something for someone else, however, that state of self-focus immediately dissolves. 
And I think this just confirms, I can't remember if it was the other night that I quoted that, uh, those famous lines from Shanti Deva, the ninth century Tibetan master, where he said, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. That is quite counterintuitive in a way, so I'll read it again. All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. So that wanting pleasure for oneself is the self-indulgence that the Buddha warned against in his teachings on the middle way. And the other side that he also warned against is self-mortification. And in the Buddha's time, lifetime, there were religious practices, spiritual practices that involved by our standards pretty extreme ways of torturing or tormenting the body seems to have been a common belief that the way to transcendence was to subdue the body in various ways. Things like uh, taking vows to never sit down or to sleep on beds of nails or to severely restrict how much food one ate. And these kind of practices are not what we generally do in the West anymore. But as Joseph Goldstein has pointed out, what is very common is a form of psychological self-torture. So we don't do it so much to the body anymore, but we do often have these very strong tendencies of self-judgment and self-aversion and perfectionism and inadequacy and all kinds of, at times, even self-loathing that we could think of as this opposite extreme of self-mortification in a psychological way. So because of this, the middle way in the Buddha's teachings is really an invitation to find balance and to actually cultivate skillful mind states as a way, as an antidote if there is a tendency to self-aversion, to consciously come back to the middle way through the cultivation of skillful states. So we have these two wings of wisdom and compassion, and compassion is that invitation to really start to consciously develop skillful states of heart and mind. So we can see in our own practice at times that often the wisdom wing gets too far ahead of the compassion wing, and that gap is uncomfortable. I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but at times, you know, perhaps we... Um, start to see our habits, our patterns, our motivations in pretty high definition clarity. And if there's not much compassion to hold that clear seeing, it can be painful. It can be uncomfortable. There's that old joke that self-knowledge is not always good news or not often good news. And sometimes it does feel like we're seeing all our quirks on our foibles in the pretty intent with almost too high a degree of intensity. And so we need this grounding in compassion, self-compassion, to have the resilience to you know, see ourselves honestly without falling into self-aversion. 
On the other hand, sometimes the compassion wing gets ahead of the wisdom and we really start to feel very acutely our own suffering, the suffering of others, the suffering of the world. You know, it it seems, I don't know, it feels to me like there's just much more going on globally these days and so many different forms of stress and distress and suffering around the world, in our own communities, in ourselves. And if we don't have a strong grounding in wisdom, we can just feel flattened or overwhelmed by that. So again, we need to try and have these two wings in balance so that we can maintain some stability. So I think perhaps um, many of you did the uh, working through the series on the Noble Eightfold Path last year. Do you remember back that far? Yeah, it seems a long time ago already, but if you remember back to the context of the Noble Eightfold Path, it was actually how the Buddha defined the middle way. So after he had that experience of waking up under the Bodhi tree, he taught the middle way and he said this middle way is the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Noble Eightfold Path are these eight different aspects of our lives that we can cultivate together in the service of deepening freedom. So it's a very holistic path and it really encompasses every aspect of our lives, beginning with right view. And right view is basically that understanding that actions have consequences, that what we think and say and do, how we are in the world, has an effect not only on ourselves but on the people around us. And as our right view develops, we start to see, to know for ourselves whether what we're doing is bringing more suffering, stress and distress or if it's leading to greater ease and happiness and freedom. So that's a very basic definition of right view. And out of that understanding, we come to the second path factor, which is right thought. People remembering this? It's all coming back to you. So right thought, just to say straight away that in English, that's a pretty unfortunate translation because at least for me, it sounds very Orwellian. You know, right thought, the thought police are coming to get you, you know, unless you start thinking in the right way. So for me, it was helpful to keep in mind Gill's translation of right as appropriate. So what's appropriate thought or appropriate intention? And this appropriate intention is, um, are my thoughts leading in the direction of greater ease and freedom? So I'd like to read you just uh, the Buddha's understanding of this in a really a key teaching from the Majjhima Nikaya where he says, practitioners, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. As I abided thus, 
diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus, this thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. When I considered this, it subsided in me. And when I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. So pretty interesting that um, if we really pay close attention to our thoughts, we can start to see, are these thoughts actually beneficial or harmful? And with ill will or aversion, which is one of the sets of thoughts that he named, it's usually pretty easy to see and to feel the suffering of those because aversion itself is so unpleasant. Likewise, cruelty, it's pretty obvious that hurting others usually ends up um, creating more harm for ourselves too. And what I find interesting is that even though we know this intellectually, and we might tell ourselves we're not going to do that again, sometimes even a few minutes later we find ourselves doing exactly that thing, and it's like, how did this happen? How is this possible? But in that same sutta, the Buddha went on to describe why and how. He said, practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, this will become the inclination of one's mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, one has abandoned the thought of goodwill to cultivate the thought of ill will, and one's mind inclines to thoughts of ill will. So this phrase, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Anybody noticed that? It's pretty basic on one level, and yet it's something that neuroscience is only just starting to catch up with. You know, the Buddha discovered this two and a half thousand years ago, and now we get people like Rick Hansen with his um, cliche now that neurons that fire together, wire together. Actually, I don't know if that was Rick Hansen. Thank you, yes. Thank you, Dan Siegel. Sorry. Rick Hansen was the brain is like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant, yeah. So basically neuroscience is finding what the Buddha had already discovered, that there is actually neural plasticity and that we can change, literally change our brains, our minds. And one key way that we can do this is by cultivating the antidotes. So the antidote to ill will is goodwill. And this is a key aspect of right thought. So what I appreciate about the Buddha's teachings is he didn't just say it's good to be kind and then leave us to our own devices. He gave actual trainings to help us do that. And this is where the Brahma-Vihara practices come in. There are four flavors of love, you could say, four different skillful qualities of heart and mind that we can actually train in and develop through our meditation practice. So, 
usually when these uh, Brahma-Vihara practices are taught, we start with the first one, which is metta or goodwill. And as I said at the start of the talk, these practices generally don't get a lot of um, airtime, you could say. And if they're taught at all, usually metta is the one that is taught. And then the others are just kind of, oh, yeah, and there's also compassion and joy and equanimity. But from my perspective, that's really unfortunate because these four really work together to balance each other out and to strengthen each other. And if we only develop one of them, we don't get the full benefit. It's like a four-ply piece of rope. You know, all four strands together make something really powerful. The other downside of focusing so much on metta is that people sometimes think that that's supposed to be my universal response to anything whatsoever that's going on in my life. And sometimes metta is not actually the best or the most skillful response. So sometimes, I've used this example before, but people will say something like, I've been trying to do meta for my ex-partner that I've been in a custody battle with for the last five years and it's just not working. And usually I'll say to them, well, have you done any kind of compassion for yourself? And the usual response is one of abject horror or at worst, at best, a kind of blank confusion like, why would I do that? And this is just to point to one way that we can, in almost uh, what we call spiritual bypassing, try too hard to offer metta out there and make everything out there nice when we haven't really done the work in here to take care of our own hurts or pains or wounds um, before we really can more genuinely or fully offer kindness and compassion to others. So it's true that metta is the foundation of these states and that they are all different flavors, you could say, of love and that they're grounded in metta. But I think it's helpful to keep in mind these different flavors because they do so support each other. And I'd like to read you one way that uh, an English, two English Dharma teachers have framed this sequence of practices I think I may have shared this at an earlier talk, but I think it's worth hearing again. This is by Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs, and it's their way of laying out these four sublime abidings. So they say, metta, or kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It's not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna or compassion brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita or appreciative joy brings the heart back into balance. Mudita the love that celebrates is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka or equanimity brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. 
If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that framing of these uh, practices, each of the qualities can be used to overcome some kind of unhelpful mind state. And each one also balances the others out. So you might have noticed in that description how each one slides quite naturally into the next. But in the end, we come full circle back to metta. Because if the last quality of equanimity slides into disconnection, it's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we have this sense of uh, creating a circle, of working through these qualities over and over again. And I think of it as like a spiraling sort of energy that almost creates a force field of these different qualities of love. And when these are fully developed, it's uh, the unconditional aspect of the Brahma-Viharas that gives them their transformative power. And it's developing the boundless or the unconditional aspect of them that lifts them from being just nice qualities of character to practices that can really free our hearts and minds on the deepest level. And if the concept of boundlessness sounds perhaps just a little bit daunting, it's important to remember that these are practices, they're trainings, they're qualities that we can cultivate. And obviously we all have to start where we are. So this first one, um, or just to say that all of them, to emphasize that these are practices and not always easy. So I just like to get a sense how many people find these kind of practices challenging if you've done them before. Anybody find they just like come really easy and it's like, yes, here we go. Great, thank you. Happy to hear that. You did? You had it in? Great, great. I got it. So for you, there was a real concreteness that you could engage with. Good. So just to say, you know, even in this room, there's a range from people where it just feels natural and easy to people, I'll put myself at the other end of the spectrum. I loathed meta practice for a long time. Um, So to say, you know, I sometimes refer to myself as a transformed meta skeptic. (laughs) And I have come a long way, and sometimes I still do have this sense of unreality that I'm sitting here giving a talk about these practices because for me in the beginning they were just so difficult. So there's a whole range of of, um, relationships to these practices, and I think one reason they can be challenging is that they're known as um, purification practices, which means that they're actually designed to show us what gets in the way. They're designed to bring up our stuff. But usually when that happens for people, they think they've done something wrong because, you know, we're instructed to sit here and, you know, cultivate this boundless kindness and this beautiful language. And there's a sense that we should be like sitting steeped in waves of oceanic bliss. And yet for some of us, what we actually find ourselves sitting with is incredible boredom or 
irritation or rage or self-loathing or judgment or resentment or jealousy or blankness or disconnection or you know there's a huge long list of other things that we can experience when we sit down to try to develop these beautiful qualities and most people think oh this is terrible I've done something wrong I can't do this or they blame the practice for not working but the key is really to remember that if those things are coming up, that means the practice is actually working because it's showing us what's getting in the way. So again, there's another um, slogan I like to use here. If it's in the way, it is the way. So if we find things getting in the way, great. That's where we need to put our attention and to slowly, gently and with metta find ways to allow that obstacle to dissolve. Sometimes if I do meta, maybe it's just balancing wisdom and meta better, more easier. Um, I can sort of like go off on this tangent and be like really emotionally upset about this particular person I'm doing meta for because I know the background or whatever mm-hmm. and feel really quite um, upset. I sort of think, just not meant to be like this. I shouldn't feel like that. I must be, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of like want to, want to put the shields back around my heart and not feel those terrible sadness and mm-hmm. where a particular person. And, but yet, I mean, I also know there's probably beneficial in that person needs that meta. I mean, so how do you balance that out without actually going off in the deep end like that? So that's part of the challenge and the skill and the art of the practice is to begin to work with people where we're less likely to fall into grief. So all of these qualities have what are known as a near and a far enemy. And the near enemy of, um, that sounds almost like you're more in compassion because you're working with the person's suffering. And the near enemy of compassion is, can be grief where we just get overwhelmed with it. So they're slightly different. So the flavors that I, I was giving the outline of before, metta is the basic goodwill. And then when metta turns towards what's difficult or challenging, it flowers as compassion. So compassion is specifically connected to pain, distress, suffering, and so on. Whereas metta can be, it's in a way, it's more universal. And then on the other side of the coin, when uh, metta connects towards what's going well, it flowers as mudita or appreciative joy. And then when joy and compassion are in balance, they come back together as equanimity. So I'll come back to that later, if I may, if there's more way you want to flesh out there, because I don't want to keep you sitting in one position for too much longer. Just to bring it to a close with a couple of last points. Having Trying to have metta for our non-metta is really the key to working with uh, some of these obstacles rather than judging ourselves. Okay, some irritation. Not to take it personally, but to see this is the practice actually working and to try and to have kindness for that. So part of... uh, One aspect of metta that I find really powerful is to think of it as a practice of listening, a really deep listening to our own mind states, to our own hearts. So rather than trying to manufacture a particular kind of emotion, which is what 
got in the way for me in the beginning. I thought I was trying to make some kind of emotion happen. But actually, a turning point for me came when I realized it's more about listening to what's already there, even if that signal is incredibly faint. So sometimes I use the metaphor of the Hubble telescope. And, you know, I'm not fully understanding of what that is, but my sense of it is that it's a very sophisticated piece of machinery, electronic equipment that's beaming out into space and looking for the faintest signs of life. And sometimes it feels like meta practice is looking for those faint flickers of life in the deepest, darkest recesses of my own heart. And once I learn to recognize them, just the recognition alone can help to amplify them. And then over time and with practice, the signal gets stronger. I can tune in more easily. I can find that setting and help it to grow. So to the key is to remember that with all of these practices, it's the intention to do them that's important, not so much whether we get an emotional state. Because the idea of them is that they become unconditional with no strings attached, no agenda. If we're doing them to try and get some particular kind of emotion or a feeling, then they're not unconditional anymore. So it's just sitting there and setting the intention over and over and over again, even if it feels dry and mechanical, actually is powerful practice. It's like planting seeds. We keep planting the seeds, and then at some point when conditions come together, they may flower. So having some trust in that practice. So just one last point is to try not to approach these practices as yet another kind of self-improvement project. Oh, you know, I need to boost my meta or I should be a kinder person or if only I was more compassionate or I've got no equanimity. You know, if we're doing it with this sense of um, trying to become a better person, it can be a fine line with that because it may be rooted in some kind of self-aversion, which is obviously um, a form of ill will and is counterproductive. So really to set an intention but without focusing too tightly on it or having too strong an agenda and just trusting that this process will naturally over time lead to the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So that's probably more than enough for one session. Let's uh, maybe take a moment of silence now just to let the words dissolve for a moment. And then we can move into a tea break and then have some guided meditation. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.